0: My guest on today's show is Matt Levine, the writer of Money Stuff, a brilliant daily financial newsletter on Bloomberg View. Matt's column discusses current events in corporate finance and markets with an insightful, nuanced lens and a dry wit. As Matt describes in his bio, he writes about the financial industry on the internet and on the Bloomberg Terminal, which is sort of like the internet, but orangier. (laughs) If you receive my monthly email, you'll already know that I'm a huge fan of Matt's and that Money Stuff has become my go-to source of business news. Our conversation covers Matt's path to journalism through law school and investment banking, his daily routine, and some of his favorite writing topics, including why everything is securities fraud, stock buybacks, the CDS market, index funds, private markets, quantitative investing and beating benchmarks. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Matt Levine. Matt, thanks so much
1: for joining me. Thanks for having me. Well,
0: why don't we just start with your background?
1: I went to law school. I became an M&A lawyer. did that in like 2005, which is when M&A lawyers all thought they should be investment bankers. And also I was working all the time. So at some point someone came to me and offered me a job as an investment banker. And I said, that sounds good. By which I meant, like actually, this guy who I used to work with called me, he was like, do you want a job at Goldman? And I said, is it better than this job? And he said, it's a little better than this job. And I asked him very specific questions about the hours and the hours were a little better. I was like, okay, fine, let's do it. So I went to Goldman. I asked a lot of questions about the hours. I didn't really understand what the job was until I got there. It was like structuring equity derivatives and doing convertible bond underwriting, which like he told me that. I just like, it's impossible to know what that means when you're an M&A lawyer. So I went and did that. and It was a very strange field. Like no one leaves that to do anything else. After I left years later, recruiters would call me. I was like a journalist recruiters would call me and be like, do you want to head up convertible bonds at like some investment bank? Because there's no one who does it. And everyone who does it just keeps doing it and rotating between banks. But it was like a good exposure to a lot of things. I was like, pricing derivatives and like thinking about options math and Greeks, but also like your corporate equity derivatives are not really driven by finance. They're driven by taxes and accounting and securities law. So like I was learning a lot of stuff about those fields and I was working with investment bankers and hanging around m and deals and underwritings, but I was also working with traders and sort of seeing how they thought about risk. So it was a good exposure to a lot of different finance things. And I was like good at it early on because it was a lot of structuring and thinking and keeping track of stuff. And then as I got more senior, it became more about selling, and I was worse at that. So I eventually got pretty bad at my job and didn't like doing it, and I thought I'd do something else. And so I um, more or less quit to go right at deal breaker, which is this financial gossip blog, financial blog, I don't know.
0: How long did you go from being the junior person, keeping track of stuff to more senior in a salesy kind of position? I don't know.
1: I started as like a second year associate and I left as like a second, third year VP. It's a mix all the way through. Like the MDs on my desk were like actively involved in structuring stuff and the associates would occasionally pitch deals, you know, but like I would say that as an associate, I was mostly compensated and evaluated for my technical skill. And as a VP, I was mostly compensated and evaluated for my sales skill some crossover. How
0: much total time were you at Coleman? Four years. So now we're on the deal breaker, the gossip. Yeah,
1: it's not really the right word, but I don't know. It's a humorous Wall Street blog. And I sort of vaguely thought, I could do that and I didn't really know what I was getting into, but how'd you make that transition? I just sort of did it. So I really didn't want to be a banker anymore. So I like went to my boss and I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And <laughs> this is before I had a job at Dubai. I was like, I just don't want to do this anymore. And He was like, what are you going to do? I was like, I don't know. I'm going to quit and like think about it for a while. And he said, well, don't quit now. Just like take some time off and take like a sabbatical and figure out what you want to do, which is very nice of him. And so I went back to my desk and I was like, I'm going to take two months off. And then before I was able to do that, deal breaker was hiring. And I sort of knew people there. I had a friend who worked for their above the law, which is the law blog there. And so I applied and I was like a guy coming from Goldman, they knew me, they knew I was like a decent person, and I just tell people their barriers to hiring me were pretty low because like they don't pay that much, and if I was really bad at it, the commenters would be really mean to me, and I would quit in a month, which has sort of had happened before, so they're like their risk was pretty low, so they just hired me and then I went back to my boss and I was like, never mind, I'm actually quitting for a job and then they were they were a little nervous that I was going to dealbreaker.
0: Right. And so, what was that experience like?
1: Ah, It was really fun. It was me and Bess Levin, who's like not exactly the founder, but eminence behind the site. It was like we joked that it was our art project. It was like extremely hands off, and we kind of did what we want and we did what we found funny. At some point, we decided that it'd be fun to have dramatic readings of old deal-breaker posts. And so, we hired an actor and like rented a bar and had dramatic readings. Yeah, it was a good completely structureless environment to do what you thought was interesting and fun in a way that you thought was interesting and fun rather than serving anyone else's purpose at all.
0: Did you have both that kind of business lens of what is this as a business and then also the journalistic angle when you started?
1: No. It's a very small company, so you think about things like that in a way you don't at Goldman. You know, at Goldman yeah they'll probably they'll make some money somewhere. Also I was like selling things at Goldman but I don't at Bloomberg, right? Like at Bloomberg, I'm not really that worried about like the business. Someone else takes care of the business. Someone else took care of the business at Dealbreaker too, but it was a much smaller company, and you sort of like sat in the same room as the person who took care of the business. We had to do a little more thinking about like how the thing was paid for. So the dramatic reading night, we sold tickets, you know. Like and we always were thinking about like we could have an events business, but not in any like really structured way. There was a business side who did the business job, and I did not do the business job, but you're just a little closer to it then.
0: How did the transition to Bloomberg come up?
1: You write on the internet, people can read it. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) it's nice. I talked to them about coming there, and then they hired me.
0: I wanna dive into a bunch of the topics you write about. Before we do that, I'm kind of fascinated about your writing process, because you put out so much. In fact, I find it hard sometimes just to keep up with reading what you put every day, and you're writing it. What's the structure of your day look like?
1: There's no real structure. Like, I wake up and I write in a panic until I'm done. And I send it to an editor and then I send it out. Oh, so you start the day it comes out? Well, my day starts at, like, 5 a.m. I wake up. I have, like, some stuff collected for that day's money stuff. Sometimes I've written a section. Mostly I've collected links. Sometimes I've written two sections. But, you know, it's mostly, like, pretty ill-formed. And then I sort of sit down and write it from 5 a.m. to 11 a.m. with some time out to get my daughter off to school and whatnot. And then... Around 11, I send it to an editor, and then it gets published at noon. And then usually I like go into the office, and then from sort of 1 till 5, I like look for other stuff and start writing stuff and have lunch with people and complain to reporters and do all of the job stuff that isn't typing the thing.
0: You mentioned you start writing at 5 a.m. Do you have a place at your house that you just cordon off and your daughter's asleep and you just roll out of bed and start writing?
1: You know usually do the crossroad first, but like,
0: yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a procrastination technique.
1: <laughs> uh, well, yeah, you got to wake up. Yeah, no, I just kind of like I have a desk in the other room and I go and sit at it and fire up the internet. And usually the intense writing is starts more than at least half an hour in and I'm mostly checking the news first and waking up. But yeah, it's just like less distracted first thing in the morning. It's easier to focus then. Every day I'm like, I'm going to write more of it in the afternoon so that I don't have to do this, but it's just easier to focus when no one else is awake.
0: Were you that way all through your academic career? No, I'm not like a morning person.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's just an accident. It's the series of (laughs) poor decisions.
0: Have you thought about writing a book? Sure. And? I don't know, what should I write? I don't really know. But I've always been amazed at how much you put out every day.
1: I like what I do. Bloomberg is nice to me, and it's nice to have a daily audience. It's nice to have people who are kind of reading it every day, and like it's just more interactive. Not easy for me to write every day; it's like exhausting. But it's a frequency that works for me. I think if I just were told you have a year, come back with a book, that would be hard. Maybe I could do that. Maybe I'll do it one day. But like this
0: frequency works for me. What does that interactive feedback look like?
1: People tweet at me. And, like, I go talk to people in the industry sometimes, and they're like, oh, yeah, I read your column. What do you think about that? My impression is that a lot of people who work in the financial industry read it, and I can talk to them about what they think. And it's just like a more, you know, like if I wrote a book, the sort of, like, directness of feedback is missing. How
0: did you come to the structure of this kind of lens of corporate finance from your couple years at Goldman? And then just applying it to what you're seeing in the markets and in companies.
1: I started at DealBreaker as like a blogger, right? I wasn't like an investigative reporter. I didn't have time to like go spend a month chasing down a story, you know? So like it was very much like reacting to the news. And I always sort of felt like if I'm going to ask people to read what I write rather than someone else, writes, so I should bring to bear some expertise or something that I'm not just quoting people are making a joke but i know something that isn't obvious about the news so like that's the basic thing is it's sort of old school blogging is it's like someone who has an expertise in something other than journalism like writing about the news of the day so it's not like necessarily like reporting or research intensive but it is applying knowledge to something
0: i want to start hitting on some of your Topics you write about, and so I'll just say it, and why don't you just sort of go. <laughs> <Where does laughs> give me you my stick. will just go give you your stick. Right. Everything is securities fraud. Everything is securities fraud. I feel
1: like this is like the lightning round. What I talk about a lot is, you know, a bad thing happens to a company, shareholders will sue, and often, like the SEC or the Justice Department will get involved, but the reason they'll sue is always that bad thing happens at a company, either the company does a bad thing, or like a senior executive does a bad thing, or sometimes it's just like a bad thing happens to it, like computers get hacked. And you can always say, well, this company either did the bad thing or was vulnerable to the bad thing, and they knew about that before shareholders did. They didn't tell you, they didn't say in their prospectuses and their 10Ks, we're gonna get hacked, right? Or like, we haven't secured our computers well enough and they're gonna get hacked. Or they didn't tell you, you know, our CEO is a sexual harasser, or like a whole range of bad activities. The one I like to quote is SeaWorld. There was a documentary about them abusing orcas, and that became an SEC securities fraud case. They were not sufficiently transparent about this documentary involving their abuse of orcas. So the company knew it. The shareholders didn't know. The company didn't tell the shareholders. Shareholders were buying and selling stock. They were doing that without complete information, so they were defrauded. There was securities fraud. Or, like, sometimes people don't like that word, but there was a failure to disclose that is more or less securities fraud. If you think about, if that's your lens on the world—that everything is securities fraud—it's both an opportunity and sort of uncomfortable. It's an opportunity because if you don't like something, it's often a lot easier to go after that thing as securities fraud than as whatever else it is, right? So there are state attorneys general and like people in Congress trying to get the SEC to do it, going after Exxon and other big oil and coal producers for global warming and pollution-related things, and it's like, well, you know, like often they were doing legal but polluting activities, but were they telling you enough about the potential effects of climate change? Arguably, no. And so you can go after them for pollution on a securities fraud theory. Or like, rather than having to sort of like prove sexual harassment on a court of law, which can be a fraud process, you can just be like, well, he was fired for sexual harassment, so that's securities fraud. So there's all sorts of things that are easier to do as securities fraud. And so if you don't like some of these substantive bad things, you can punish them as securities fraud. It's a powerful enforcement mechanism. On the other hand, it's very weird because the victim – technically is always the shareholders. And so it's very strange to go after Exxon Mobil for defrauding its shareholders, by drilling for oil. The shareholders wanted that. The shareholders like bought this oil stock so that they okay. could make money from producing oil. And so it's very strange to say well those shareholders were defrauded because you were like drilling too much oil and not thinking about the effects of climate change. Like there's a theory for it, but it's just sort of awkward. And it's awkward when you think about like the actual victims of the actual bad things are rarely shareholders, right? They're like the people being harassed or the citizens of the world who are suffering from climate change. And it's philosophically awkward to treat all of that as being about shareholders. It's a weird way to prioritize the legal system around the rights of shareholders, even though it's like not really what's happening, but it's sort of
0: symbolically what's happening. And then if you take that to the next step, you get to this sort of insider trading. Yeah, because executives...
1: Right, everything that's securities fraud is also insider trading. If a bad thing happened and the company didn't disclose it, that's securities fraud, but if like meanwhile the executives were selling stock without disclosing the bad thing, then that's insider trading. Executives are just sort of in the business of selling stock because they get paid a lot in stock, and they need to like buy a house, and so they'll sell stock. And so, if like you have an undisclosed bad thing for long enough, then there are at least going to be accusations of insider trading.
0: And then on the other side, there's a lot of noise these days about buybacks. And I know you have your own spin on the debate.
1: There are some plausible criticisms of buybacks. I feel like I don't want to like take too strong a side in like the buyback debate. But a thing that troubles me is a lot of people. There is a strand of the buyback debate that says companies should never return money to shareholders. It says once money comes into a company, it should stay in that company forever, which is obviously not what anyone says. But it's like sort of the implied position that returning money to shareholders is always bad because companies should always be spending it on some other thing, whether it's employee benefits or lowering costs for customers. But it's often expressed as long-term value. It's expressed as like, you have this money and you should invest it in like building stuff in the business rather than waste it by giving it back to shareholders, which I think is a sort of strange bias to have. And like, if you sort of look at like the long run of how buybacks happened, basically what happened is like the seventies and eighties, there was a view that corporate managers liked to spend money inefficiently and to aggrandize themselves and build empires. And so like, there's this wave of conglomeration. where like, managers are like, oh, look, we have money. We should buy some more stuff so we can have a bigger headquarters and I can run a bigger company and be more famous. And as a corrective to that, shareholders got more interested in having companies return money to them so that they could decide how to invest it rather than having the companies decide how to invest it. And we've now perhaps swung too far, but also like the rhetoric has swung too far where now it's just assumed that the worst thing companies can do is give money back to shareholders. Now, There are some arguments for that. Like the shareholders are often like the managers, own a lot of shares and boost their own compensation and so forth. But the sort of original notion that returning money to shareholders disciplines managers and allows and prevents them from wasting the money is then lost and we've kind of gone the other way, which I find kind of weird.
0: Should we take it away from the pure corporate side and I want to get into the markets a little bit. You've been writing a lot about what's happening in the CDS market. Why don't you start with, where the CDS market started, where it is today, and where do you think it's going?
1: So CDS is a contract that allows you to bet on the credit quality of a company. CDS is a contract that pays off when a company defaults on its debt, and it pays off basically the amount of money that, theoretically, pays off the amount of money you would have lost on default. So when you think about how that started, you could short bonds, right? You could borrow a bond and sell it short, and then if the company defaulted, the value of that bond would go down and you'd make money, Right. But CDS has some advantages over that. One is that it's like kind of hard to borrow bonds. They're often like kind of locked up. Another is that it allows you to make a sort of generic bet on the company rather than picking a specific bond to bet on. So you just have more liquidity because you're there's sort of one CDS contract on the company rather than a bunch of different bonds. Another thing is like there's there's someone on the other side, like someone who wants exposure to the credit of a company but doesn't have the funding to buy the bond can buy the CDS. There are elements that make CDS as a contract a nice way to bet on the credit of a company, but it is different from just the bond. And so what's happened now is that a bunch of people have found ways to more or less drive a wedge into that difference to say, instead of just being like a pure bet on outside facts in the world about the credit of a company, you can like do stuff to make that CDS contract pay out in a way that the bond wouldn't have paid out. And these are often talked about as, as like some prod CDS shenanigans, but there's like a bunch of different things. There's no like real coherent single thing that happens. Like one thing that happens is that hedge funds will go to companies and say, hey, if you default on your bonds, like just a little bit, like just don't, don't pay one bond, like maybe one that you own. So you don't even, no one even gets mad at you. If you just like do a default on your bonds, then our CDS will pay out. And so we'll have money. Cause these hedge funds have CDS, so we'll have money, and we'll give some of it to you, right? And they don't say it like that because it sounds like a bribe, but they'll be like, "We'll give you a beneficial refinancing. We'll refinance your debt at some more favorable rate to you, and we'll subsidize that with the payout we get on our CDS." Another thing you can do, by the way, is like if the company default, if like Microsoft did that, which they wouldn't, but if they did that, CDS wouldn't pay out very much because their bonds are not distressed, and like the CDS pays out basically the amount you would have lost on the bond. But you can go to a company and be like, why don't you issue a really weird bond that would be deliverable into CDS and that would be worth like 10 cents on the dollar so that the CDS mechanism will be tricked into thinking we lost a lot of money on the bond and it'll pay out more and then we'll have more money to give to you. So that's like the refinement of that trade. Another thing is like CDS was kind of more of a thing 10 years ago than it is now in a sense. So there are all these companies that are in this weird position where they have like a lot of CDS but not a lot of bonds in the thing that CDS is on. They've a lot of bonds in some other subsidiary, but the subsidiary that the CDS is on doesn't have a lot of bonds, and that creates weird dynamics for CDS, and so hedge funds will exploit that two ways. Sometimes they will try to minimize the amount of bonds so that the CDS doesn't pay off the ones who are on the who sold the CDS will do that. Other times they'll be like, "Hey, you should issue a lot of bonds in your old devalued subsidy or just make them co issuers And then our CDS will go up way up in value and we'll give you some of that value too. And there's a bunch of other stuff like this. So it's like become a playground for clever hedge fund people to think about structure rather than this pure bet on credit quality independent of all these things. I'm not that bothered by this for a couple of reasons. One, it's like many of these stories result in companies getting cheap financing. And it's like, well, you have this derivatives market. The company didn't ask for it. It was just like, grew up independently of these companies. And now the company's like, hey, we're going to extract some money from that derivatives market. That's kind of cool. It's like a story of the triumph of regular corporations over Wall Street capitalism. Another reason I'm not that bothered by it is that I think it's a mistake to think that there is this pure bet on the credit quality of a company. A company is going to default or not default, not just based on its cash flows, but based on like, whether it can get refinancing or whether it's lenders will extend its loans. That's a question that is not purely economic, but depends on its relationship with the lenders. And this is just the sort of expansion of that where like the creditors are making decisions that are about their own self-interest and not just like a pure objective default decision. So all this stuff, people find it sort of shocking because it feels manipulative. It feels like negotiated and weird and backroomy. but like that's kind of what credit is. So it doesn't bother me that much, but People complain about it a lot. One thing that happens is people, every time one of these things happens, you'll read quotes about how this is going to be the end of the CDS market. And it's not, but at the same time, it does feel like sort of diminished compared to like where it was before the financial crisis. So I think people are very focused on making it a little bit less surprising. And there's ISDO, which runs this, just announced the new... Like a change to the CDS documentation to eliminate one of these surprises. So, you know, they're working on it. Maybe it'll happen, but maybe it'll be some somewhat less surprising. But it does just feel like it's all, these questions are always going to be kind of fought over and negotiated because that's what happens when a company runs out of money. So there's only so much room to improve it.
0: Take a step back and talk a little bit about some of the key trends in markets in general. The first being movement of money into passive vehicles and index funds.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of that. I think there's a really interesting set of corporate governance questions around passive. There's sort of an intuition about what like a, a hedge fund manager, even a mutual fund manager should do with the companies that he owns. They should make sure that they're making money and like call them up and yell at them if they're doing something wrong and like... Maybe start an activist campaign or support an activist as a whole. Like, if you're an investment manager who analyzes companies and picks a relatively small number of them to invest in and monitors them closely, you have like a relationship with their governance that makes a kind of intuitive sense. If you're Vanguard and you're like the biggest shareholder in a whole bunch of companies, but no one picked them, no one follows their financials, it's just weird to think about what you should do there. One thing is you see a lot of the big passive fund managers spend a lot of time saying we're not passive in governance we care a lot about governance we really focus on this now it seems unlikely that that is primarily organized around financial performance right so like if you're a activist hedge fund manager you're mainly interested in like can the company make some changes that will make it more money if you're a Vanguard you can't process that question for thousands of companies you don't have Industry analysts for a lot of those in you know, a classic index fund, and so you're thinking about much more general questions like what is the structure of good corporate governance? Should the board be independent, and should the chairman be the same as the CEO? And these like sort of very generic questions, which probably add value, but you tend to get generic answers if you're asking questions about three thousand companies, and you can only focus on sort of high level governance stuff. You also get a lot more like it's almost more political and social questions. So, like Larry Fink of BlackRock sends this letter every year that's like companies should be more good, right? Bill Hagman doesn't say companies should be more good. He's like, this company should like divest this business or whatever, right? There's like, a, there's like a direct corporate focus. If you're looking at every company at once, you're sort of more interested in broad social issues. And then the thing that I love writing about is if you own all the companies, you might want them to compete less against each other and raise prices so they can extract more money from consumers. This is a theory that some academics espouse and are really into, and that I usually refer to by the tagline, should index funds be illegal? But the theory is that if you're like a concentrated activist shareholder of like a dozen companies, you pick the best company in a couple of industries, and you want that company to be the winner in that industry and to gain market share and to compete as hard as possible. If you own every company in an industry, then you... Mostly want prices to be high. You don't care about who has the market share. So you'd never want your company to cut prices to gain market share because that would just decrease the size of the pie for everyone. No one I talk to in the financial industry thinks that's true. Like zero people. Academics like it and it has some, it's gotten some attention from regulators like the FTC has held hearings about it. And it makes like a lot of intuitive sense because like when you say it like that, yeah, it just makes sense. One reason that no one believes it is that there's no evidence that anyone calls up corporate managers and says, Hey, you should keep your prices high and not compete. So it's a little hard to figure out what the mechanism would be by which this would work. But what I think is interesting about it is that it speaks to these broader questions of like, how are companies governed when half of their stock, let's say, I mean, we're not there yet, but we're getting there. when Half of their stock is owned by like four big index fund firms that just don't make investing decisions. I'm not interested in like the index fund managers calling the CEOs and saying do illegal stuff. I think as a CEO, like how do you think about your job when your biggest shareholders are, there's no one picked your stock, there's no analyst. Interests are in sort of 30,000 foot questions of governance rather than in like how you're running your business. It's just a weird thing to think about as a corporate CEO.
0: There's been this wave in the last couple of years of the private unicorn obviously more and more money from big institutions going to private equity managers and sitting in the coffers there and and not seeing those stocks grow in the public markets. How do you think about that lens of looking at mostly public markets, but a little bit on the private side as well?
1: These two things seem related in a somewhat hard to articulate way, right? It seems like the public markets have become more passive more of the sort of investing decisions and like providing capital to companies that are growing is occurring in the private markets while the public markets are for mature companies to kind of harvest profits. And there's probably a feedback loop where as public companies are bigger and more mature and more steady and profitable, it's easier to index because you just get less alpha by picking stocks. And as public markets become more index dominated, it's like harder to make your case to index funds if you're like a sort of interesting growthy company. So you might be more interested in staying private. And so it probably feeds on itself. There does seem to be independently, like there's a lot of money that is available to private markets. And like, there's probably just a series of economic and technological changes there where like, it used to be if you wanted to raise a lot of money, you had to go to the public markets because that's where the money was. Now there are more billionaires there are pools of money in like the middle east and china that are accessible to american companies that didn't used to be and technologically it's easier to raise private money and there's been some legal changes that make it a little easier to raise private money too but like there's a lot of inconveniences and downsides to being public and the notion was always was made up for because if you reached a certain size the only way to do it was to be public and now that's not really true anymore so there are going to be more just big private companies. That's sort of what I think. I mean, like one thing that's happening is that this year there's a lot of talk about some of the very biggest unicorns going public. So like maybe this notion of a big change is just sort of temporary and like in three years, all the big tech
0: companies will be public, but I don't know. Well, certainly the way that some of these are going public is completely different than what it used to be. And they're not tapping into the public markets for capital.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's like these direct listings where they just go public. Well, There's Spotify so far, but it just goes public without doing an offering at all. A lot of the ones that do, it's mainly secondary and like it's not for financing purposes. Uber still burns money. Like they'll probably take some money.
0: What's your take on increased computerization and quantitative methods of investing?
1: On the long view, pretty optimistic about the ability. There are people who are like real deep skeptics about driverless cars, and I don't know enough about driverless cars to a strong view one way or the other. But it sort of seems like, you know, and I just casually consume the news that driverless cars have like made big advances and can kind of drive. And like, to me, it's got to be a lot easier to pick stocks than to drive a car for a computer. Computers, like there's a lot of data about stocks and like, I mean, it's harder for a human. Sure. Like humans like learn how to drive, but like a lot of like motor skills, a lot of visual discrimination that is really hard for a computer to do. And if you can do that, like surely you can look at a, giant pile of data and be like, this is the data that, you know, just like you can look at a visual field and be like, this is the visual data that means I should stop because I'm going to hit a child, right? You can look at the pile of data and be like, this is the stock data that tells me I should buy this stock because it's going to go up, right? So it just seems like, how hard can this be? I think that we're in a world where it's hard for active investment managers to add a lot of alpha in liquidly traded on-the-run instruments, you know, and part of that is explained by like the dumbest and simplest algorithms which is like you can just buy an index fund right or you can then you can buy like the slightly smarter algorithms like smart beta things that like say you know do this one tweak to it to make it a little better performance and so like if you're like a mutual fund manager 50 years ago if you like track the index it's fine now if you're a mutual fund manager, like the index most of the time beats you, right? Like that's the statistics. Even if you beat the index, what are you doing? Like you're buying value stocks. You can buy a value index, right? Like there's a lot of, and then like you layer on top of that smarter strategies, the room for humans to outperform and like gut instinct driven picking of liquid investments just seems really, really slim. There's other stuff. You can be an activist, right? It's harder for a computer to be an activist, harder for a computer to do a lot of like illiquid or private stuff, but the public markets are going to be, commoditized by computers, I think.
0: So I think that you, know, you made this transition from investment banking to journalism and fields related in what you're writing about, but it's quite a different role. And what you're describing has some implications for the number of seats at the table of those kind of traditionally in the investment business.
1: It does. Yeah. There are a lot of businesses that get very technologized and bigger. If you can get a particular kind of beta from a factor ETF, one thing you can do is like fire all the people who are like doing that strategy. But another thing you do is like you build like a team that sells like a more customized portfolio of you can use it as tools or as inputs into a higher value add product, right? And I don't know how that shakes out in the investment management industry. I, I think a lot about, you know, I was an equity derivatives guy as a banker, right? In the not too distant past, equities were traded by like calling up a bank and dealing with them directly and getting paying them an eighth to buy and sell shares. And now basically equities are traded by computers, right, for the most part. And so all those people are gone. But what that did was it made it really efficient to trade equities. And so like the equities business at banks is large and has a lot of people and makes a lot of money because it's not like just buying and selling stocks. It's like selling structured equity derivatives where the ability to dynamically hedge them by like tapping a computer and being like, you're gonna buy shares according to this algorithm and it'll be basically free has made it possible to do those derivatives, which are much more profitable than compare in profitability to buying and selling the stocks. So you can imagine something like that in the investment industry, where the picking of what stocks to buy in a large cap stock portfolio is just completely outsourced to computers. But there are other value add things that an investment manager does that they can spend more time on because the computerization has made that just commoditized. But there's also just private markets and activism and CDS trickery. Like there's a lot of other things. And maybe that migration is a response to the commoditization of public
0: markets. You know, alongside of that, you see a lot on the allocator side of the world is different ways people try to figure out if a manager is adding value, right? It used to be you pick stocks and I'm comparing you to the S and P 500. How should people think about what value added really means?
1: I don't know. I genuinely don't know. I mean, like there are statistical methods for discriminating alpha and there's some room for assumptions there. I mean, I often write that the essential skill of a hedge fund manager is continuing to run a hedge fund. There's some sort of inherent storytelling element to the job where you'll have like a time series of returns And like, that's interesting, but what you make of it and what you're able to tell people and what story you can tell about why your process is good and why these returns represent that process is as important as like the actual set of numbers, which is a half-joking thing I say about hedge fund managers, but makes it challenging for allocators, right? I mean, like if you're an allocator, like, I don't know, you're, you're sort of on the opposite side of that. Like you're thinking of a story for yourself about like what is appealing to you. I realize that's not what you want. You want to be like here's the objective like science of just determining it but to some extent it's like you're telling yourself a story about like why this guy why his good results are representative and his bad results are anomalous and the story that is intellectually satisfying to you is naturally going to get some weight
0: all right man let's turn to some closing questions what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family
1: i do really nerdy hobbies i um do crossword puzzles and puzzle hunts do you know what a puzzle hunt is no You, like, walk around New York solving puzzles or, like, London or whatever. There's a famous one. Guys at Goldman Sachs used to run a midnight madness puzzle hunt where, like, people went around the city all night solving puzzles. I never got to do that, but I've done The Successor, which is run by some hedge fund guys, and I do, like, other puzzle hunts. You know, I do the crossword puzzle. I do Learned League, stuff like that, the nerdy hobbies. What's
0: your biggest pet peeve?
1: I, like, read the financial news and write about it every day. And there's this constant theme of people who have, like, bought a sort of self-evidently terrible investment. And then it turned out terribly for them. Like it's like this thing that is clearly risky and structured. And they like went and were like, I thought this would be good. And then they lost all their money and it's frustrating. What I want in the world is for people to be like better warned about that and then get no sympathy once it happens. I think that you should divide the investing universe into like sensible things and ridiculous things. And like, you can do ridiculous things. And like ridiculous things, like most things, sensible things like index funds, right? You want to do like hedge funds or whole life insurance or whatever you want, like fine. But you're just, the due diligence is on you. And if it doesn't work out, then like you can't complain. Like, I think that would be a better system. We're not there yet because people are not, just aren't given the right tools to sort of evaluate that. But it's always very annoying.
0: (laughs) What reading do you almost never miss?
1: I have a weird relationship to reading because my job is to read the internet, right? So people are always like, oh, what do you read all the time? I read everything all the time. Like, that's what I do. I read the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and the FT. At the same time, I don't, like, read them, you know? Like, I have some sort of consumption production relationship to them that doesn't feel quite like reading. The stuff that I actually read, like, I get Poetry Magazine, I read that every month. The thing that I read that feels like reading is separate from financial news. What teaching from
0: your parents has most stayed with you? They were big readers.
1: I was reading a book. That probably influenced my life more than anything else. Is I just sort of grew up reading all the time.
0: All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? You know,
1: so I was a lawyer and I became an investment banker. And as I said, it was like because that's what one did at the time, right? And so I had this very sort of like straightforward career path of doing the most obvious, prestigious thing. And now I like writing on the Internet. The specific thing that I do now is really enjoyable. I'm not even writing in the internet. Wrong. like the specific like work functions that I do are really enjoyable. And I think that I spent a lot of my life assuming that there are like these job types and job titles that were like good because like a lot of people wanted them, and I didn't analyze what I was actually good at and interested in, and that meant that I spent a lot of time doing stuff that I wasn't that good at and wasn't that interested in. And now I like meet a lot of people like, I want to get into finance. And often I mean particularly lawyers who want to get into finance because I did that. And they're like, I want to get into finance. And one thing I say to them is don't get into finance. Like finance is a giant field. And instead of being like, I'm going to pick the first job that I find that is like at a prestigious core of finance, think about what you're actually interested in functionally. And like, if you really like people in sales, you should do some things. And if you really want like math and like reading documents, you should do another thing. And like, there's like a series of, your own interests that you have to prioritize rather than the obvious prestige thing. And that's very hard to know, first of all, because like you're bombarded with the prestige thing. But secondly, you, know, like, you don't know yourself when you're like 22, but it's worth figuring out because it's a lot more fun to do stuff that you're good at than like just the thing you thought you were supposed to do.
0: Great, Matt. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time.